Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You're listening to On the Environment, a podcast series from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. For more information, visit the website at envirocenter.yale.edu. Hello, my name is William Miao, and I'm a Master of Environmental Management student here at Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. I'm in the studio today with Dr. Red Agarwal, Special Advisor to Michael Bloomberg in his role as Chair of the C40 City Climate Leadership Group. He's also the Environmental Program Lead at Bloomberg Philanthropies and a Professor of Practice in International and Public Affairs at Columbia University. From 2006 to 2010, Dr. Agarwal was the Director of Long-Term Planning and Sustainability for New York City. In that capacity, he led the development and implementation of Mayor Bloomberg's long-term plan for New York City, Plan YC, a greener, greater New York. Dr. Argwell, thank you for joining us today. Very happy to be here. Thank you. Great. So um, we all know that you really have an interesting background. So you started your career in Federal Railroad Administration and worked for a time at McKinsey. So how, we'd just really like to know, how did you eventually get interested in sustainability planning? Well, I like to say that, that both I and, in fact, Mayor Bloomberg and the Bloomberg administration uh, learned sustainability either the hard way or the honest way. <laughs> uh, because, in fact, when I joined the Bloomberg administration, it wasn't to lead a sustainability office, and it wasn't what we thought we were doing. Um, in fact, what Mayor Bloomberg had asked then Deputy Mayor Dan Doctoroff to do was put together a long-term growth strategy for New York City. And that's what I was hired to do. I was a consultant. I had a focus on transportation. I knew a fair bit about infrastructure. And strategy is what McKinsey consultants do. So (laughs) I was a natural fit for the role. What we learned as we looked at what does it take to have a city grow by 12 or more percent over 20 years when it's fully built out when there's no more space to expand, Mm -hmm. and when, in fact, many of your resources, like power generation, actually has to be done within the five boroughs. Few people understand that. You realize you have to be more efficient. You have to be more protective of your shared environment. You have to use your resources that much more smartly, and you have to plan against long-term threats. At the end of the day, you have to do sustainability as a strategy for having more people have a better quality of life in a constrained environment. It's true in the five boroughs of New York City, and it's true on planet Earth. Great. That's uh, very fascinating. So we see that you really spent a lot of time over the last few years um, really focusing on sustainability planning in New York City, and that really truly reflected in the plan. Um, but um, we'd just like to take a turn on this. So how would you say that the average New Yorker, how do they feel about climate change and the sustainability issues and long-term adaptation of the planning effort? Well, you know, climate change, I think, is not an issue that the average person runs around worrying about all day long. Mm-hmm. Right? There is a group of people, people like you, who study the environment, people like me who may have learned about it on the job, but nonetheless now have a career in environmental thinking. We think about it every day. Um, And then you've got a number of people who are educated and aware of it when they have the time to think about it or when it is forced onto their agendas, Mm -hmm. right? And then there's a large number of people, unfortunately, probably the majority, 
who you know may well believe that it's that it's happening. They may not be climate change deniers, but it's not relevant to their daily lives if they're struggling to meet the rent, if they're trying to figure out how to get their kids educated, if they're trying to, you know, find a job, right? You can't, you don't have the luxury to worry about something like climate change. Uh, so I think the fact is that New Yorkers, like most people, uh, people like us who work in the field, mm. we have to make it relevant, make it understandable, and provide solutions that meet not only climate change needs, but also the more daily needs of people. That, I think, is one of the things we did well in Plan YC, where every initiative in the plan, actually no initiative in the plan, was just about reducing carbon emissions. Every initiative had some other benefit as well. Air quality, public health, public space, better transportation. And I think that's how you make it far more relevant. Right. I think you really nicely pointed out the linkages between climate change and other issues such as um, water supply, health, infrastructure, and energy demand, and um, that reflected in the plan as well. So um, because of that, I'm really just a little bit interested in how we can actually communicate these messages and the linkages a bit more to the general public and making them aware of this climate change issue as well as the other things that issues that they're usually um, more concerned about well so communications is field in and of itself and uh, i would never say i had a silver bullet i think <laughs> you know as i said i think there's there's one strategy which works a certain part of the time with a certain group of people which is explaining the climate change benefits of something that that actually solves another problem that they may feel more acutely. Mayor Bloomberg, as a philanthropist and activist, has done this very much um, with our grant to the Sierra Club to fight the coal industry. Right? In one way, this is the most important initiative in the United States to deal with carbon emissions. Right? There is no question. Taking on coal is the biggest fight. It's what has led the United States to be one of the best performers, ironically. Who would have thought this week when <laughs> the Warsaw Cop is going on compared to five or six years ago that the U.S. would be leading the world in reducing carbon emissions? It's because we're killing coal, and it's great. But the fact is most of the fights around an individual power plant, the ones that we win, because we win these fights on the ground in localities, not in Washington, D.C., it's not fundamentally about carbon emissions. The fight mm -hmm. is about air quality. It's about local issues. It's about public health. And that way, you get out of partisanship because moms don't care about the ideology when it comes to protecting their kids' lungs. People don't care when you can see the smoke in the air. They don't care about the partisanship or the ideology when the coal ash is going to foul their rivers. Right. And that's how you rise above. You make it directly relevant. In fact, you see it right now in China. Right? I think it is highly likely that China is going to be one of the best performers on the environment around the world over the next five to ten years simply because they ignored it for a decade and now you see it in the air and they will improve air quality and as a byproduct they will reduce carbon emissions. It's going to be great. That is true on your point on China because um, – <coughs> I've actually recently spoken with a few of my friends there and um, who previously weren't really concerned about environment and they definitely see a bigger, um, I guess, wave of people 
picking up awareness in climate change issues and environmental issues through the recent episode of um, air quality mm. and PM 2.5 issues. So that's how it drives home. Mm. So now I'll just really like to turn into the plan uh, and plan wise plan YC itself and to uh, look into uh, the goals that were set out in 2007 by the mayor Bloomberg's office, which was to reduce the city's carbon footprint by 30% by 2030. That's a very ambitious goal. So um, how did you actually set this goal in the beginning? And on what basis were all the initiatives that you mentioned early on were selected? Well, we set the goal. The standard that Mayor Bloomberg set for us when we started working on Plan YC was that he wanted it to be ambitious but achievable. Right? And mm-hmm. so this was not an exercise where we picked a number out of a hat and said, oh, we're going to make it work. Even though if you were going to pick a number out of a hat for the year 2030, 30 is a pretty good number. <laughs> and so nobody believes me when I say that this was actually empirical. Our initial hypothesis was that it was going to be 25. Mm. Um, and what we did was we would go back and forth like a good consultant or analysis would and say, well, all right, maybe we can get to 25. Let's figure out what it would take. And are these things really feasible? And we looked at all the various components that, that you could do for that, the energy efficiency, the changes in energy supply, the reduction in, in transportation emissions, all the things that go into a comprehensive carbon emission strategy. And in fact, I remember uh, it was with, it was the engagement of our sustainability advisory board, which the mayor had appointed a group of of advocates and corporate leaders and basically a constituent assembly of the people in New York who were concerned about this or would be affected by it. So also involving, say, the Real Estate Board of New York and the Central Labor Council. And we had a conversation about what was shaping up to be, we thought we could get to 25, maybe a little more than 25. And somebody said, no, really, couldn't you get to 30? And we had a sense that there were a handful of things missing before we could say, yes, we think 30 is doable. Took us another two or three weeks of research. We had a couple of breakthroughs in terms of finding solutions to problems that had been presented around district energy in New York and a handful of other things. And it allowed us to be able to tell the mayor with confidence that we thought 30 was a doable number. In fact, as often happens with these things, we probably could have gone a little higher than 30 um, because, in fact, we're ahead of schedule, right? It's now 2013. The last carbon inventory for New York showed that we had reduced carbon emissions by 16%, right? So we are, in fact, more than halfway towards our goal in far less than half the time. Uh, the tail end is always a little bit harder than the first half, so you know maybe uh, mm-hmm. maybe the progress slows down a little bit. But um, it was very much built on the idea not of setting a number and hoping you can get there, but really thinking very hard about what's feasible. Right, and so the initiatives were shaped presumably around the goal of the and based on the analysis that you performed in each area. Yeah, so it was, you know, basically something like this you do from two angles, Mm -hmm. right? You have a general sense that, okay, maybe we could get to 25, maybe we could get to 30. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you're really down in the weeds looking at, all right, let's look at buildings in New York. What is feasible to do? What is politically feasible? What is feasible from an engineering perspective? What is feasible from an economic perspective? And you come up with the initiatives that 
that make the most sense. That's how the Greener Greater Buildings Plan was developed. That's how the Green Codes Task Force was developed. That's one of the ways we came up with the congestion pricing proposal that didn't work, but also some of the proposals that did around public plazas and planting trees and things like that. Right. It seems like there's really a lot of thought and analysis that went into that goal. So sometimes we do a project for to set a goal for a company, for a university, and we scramble our head and really struggle. So I can only imagine how much work that really went into that. So and um and you mentioned that so we've really on target for achieving that goal and we're currently on 16% reduction. So that's a really commendable result. Would you be able to break that down a little bit at a granular level and to maybe give us an insight where was um, where were the areas that we saw a lot of the breakthroughs? Uh, I, I don't carry all the numbers in my head. I think there are a handful that have been um, particularly successful. Certainly, as you know, any student of this topic knows, some of the fastest changes you can make mm-hmm. are from your energy supply and your fuel mix. Um, and New York City benefited from the fact that for various reasons, um, we wound up getting a higher share of the hydroelectric power that comes from upstate New York. We took it unto, unto ourselves to develop a cleaner fuel mix for New York City is required to generate uh, 80% of its peak capacity within the five boroughs. Not true on the off-peak, but so on a hot summer afternoon in August, 80% of the electrons are actually generated within the five boroughs. As you would imagine, it's virtually all natural gas uh, combustion going on when that takes place. Um, and we had a couple of very old natural gas-fired power plants, and the city entered into a, a long-term PPA as part of Plan YC, to build a new state-of-the-art natural gas-fired power plant. Now, it's not necessarily the most, uh, it's not the ultimate goal, of course, but that initiative itself, by replacing some old, highly inefficient turbines with a brand-new state-of-the-art plant, itself took two and a half points off the city's entire carbon footprint. Right, so you get a big mm-hmm. chunk from energy supply. We have seen the beginnings of measurable results from energy efficiency in buildings. Right? Now, of course, initially people thought maybe that was just the economic downturn because, of course, we started Plan YC in 2007, and then, <laughs> of course, 2008, 2009 were not good years for the economy. Um, but, in fact, now that the economy of New York is pretty much rebounded, we're still on an ongoing basis using less. Unfortunately, our peak has actually risen above where it was. So there are some interesting changes going on that I don't fully understand. And then we've also seen a significant benefit from an overall shift in in transportation, mm-hmm. that fundamentally driving in New York is beginning to go down, and transit, walking, biking, of course, are going through the roof. But where you get the carbon benefit is the decline in, in vehicle miles traveled and the increase in average fuel economy, which we're beginning to see. Right. That's really exciting. So, and uh, as you mentioned about the uh, the rate of the carbon decline, and it seems that and there are definitely a lot more sort of low-hanging fruits more earlier on, and then there are obviously going to be a few more challenging areas, such as perhaps waste, which is an issue that really uh, is faced by many municipalities around the world. Is there any concrete plans at the moment to tackle these well, certainly. In fact, over the last uh, over the last two years, 
New York City um, since I left New York, and of course, so I'm describing this as an outsider mm-hmm. rather than as an administration official. Um, but uh, the Bloomberg administration really has taken on the challenge of addressing solid waste, kind of the unfinished piece of, of the Plan YC commitment. Mm-hmm. But in just the last year, the mayor has uh, expanded plastics recycling. So basically all grades of plastics are now recyclable in New York. We've got an ambitious composting initiative underway in two neighborhoods and in a number of the public schools, and that we hope will be rolled out and continued by the next administration. Uh, And in fact, um, shoot, there was one other. Well, and the mayor has, of course, been a proponent of waste to energy, which we do Mm -hmm. think is part of a a good comprehensive uh, solid waste management system um, that unfortunately hasn't moved as quickly as we would like. But I think the administration has taken on uh, the challenge of recycling in a way that is has the same kind of ambition and scope as the rest of Plan YC. It's just have been a little later in the game. Right. Thanks for that. And um, I think another top, like big issue that's starting to pop up in a lot of people's radar these days is the big data, where it's being collected really around the world and uh, it kind of covers just about everything you can imagine and can't imagine. So I'm just curious if um, the office and the work that um, Plan YC has been taking, um, really how much of that big data aspect did you guys incorporate into your work? Well, so interestingly enough, I think uh, certainly Plan YC itself Mm -hmm. kind of predated big data. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, in 2006, that wasn't yet a concept we were really wrestling with. It's probably more a 2008, 2009 kind of idea. So certainly the first, uh, the first outcome of Plan YC didn't really rely on it. I think one early area in New York where big data began to affect um, sustainability thinking is in traffic management. Mm-hmm. Um, in 2007 or 8, I forget which, uh, we saw the implementation of mandates for GPS systems in taxi cabs. So the Taxi and Limousine Commission of New York now knows where every pickup and every drop-off of a yellow taxi, and in fact now the outer borough green taxis, mm-hmm. um, takes place, which gives you an incredible amount of insight into traffic patterns, into where people are traveling within the city mm. that we'd never had before. I don't think we've even fully understood what that can teach us, but it began <laughs> to be relevant to uh, things like, of course, we failed to get congestion pricing into Manhattan, but in the future, other traffic management systems. Uh, a similar area where, and, and so it wouldn't really qualify as big data, but the idea of ongoing monitoring and metrics played a very big role is in uh, the New York City Clean Heat Program which involved a package of mandates and regulations, uh, one piece of legislation and a financing mechanism to get Mm -hmm. 10,000 buildings in New York that were, a couple of years ago, still burning Mm -hmm. the bottom of the barrel. Heating oils number four and six, which is bunker fuel, literally the stuff that floats down to the bottom of the barrel of oil. It's, It's total gunk. We found, because in the first Plan YC, we implemented a system of street-level air quality monitoring, Mm -hmm. far more rigorous, far more precise than the EPA has, 140 monitoring points around the city at 10 feet off the ground, not Mm -hmm. 40 feet like the Clean Air Act requires, but 10 feet, so the stuff New Yorkers are actually breathing. And with that, we were able to identify 
that's something on the order of 40% of the PM 2.5 in New York City's air mm. came from these 10,000 buildings. Right. That finding provided the justification to move aggressively against 4 and 6 heating oil, and it's been tremendously successful. It's already essentially illegal to burn number 6. Uh, in New York, all the buildings that still have those boilers are burning number 4, which is not that clean but still better than number 6. And in fact, nearly a quarter of the buildings have already converted to natural gas mm. because of the financing mechanisms that the city put in place. That's a really great example as well. And then from that, we see that the city really had a, put a lot of momentum behind implementing these initiatives, such as you know actually going above and beyond putting those monitoring stations in. So um, it seems that the Mayor Bloomberg and his office and his um, the entire team really worked behind this whole Plan YC and the mission and the vision <laughs> it carries. So Manel, as we know, with the new recent election, with the new mayor, do you envision this uh, political support to continue into the future? Well, anybody who forecasts the future of politics, particularly in a place like New York, is, is uh, <laughs> taking on a big risk. Um, look, I think you know, New York City is a democracy, mm-hmm. right? And the good news about a democracy is the same as the bad news about a democracy. You get what you deserve. Mm-hmm. Fundamentally, whether whether it's the de Blasio administration, whoever the next speaker of the city council is, whatever, will all – their level of interest and, and seriousness about sustainability I think will be directly correlated with – how much New Yorkers and particularly the informed advocacy community in New York Mm. makes it a priority. I think the good news is that that it it should be relatively easy Mm -hmm. for the new leadership in New York to maintain progress. I was very pleased on a personal level to see that in this election campaign, which, which had a lot of controversy about a lot of things and, in fact, saw many of the candidates critical of key points of the Bloomberg administration, um, that Plan YC and and environmentalism was kind of a nonpartisan consensus issue. They all basically Mm -hmm. said, yes, we should continue the Bloomberg plan on this, and and I hope they do. There's particularly a lot of work to be done on resilience, even more than mitigation. Right. And I think that will probably be the biggest area where Mayor de Blasio will have to decide Mm. how much he's willing to commit, and uh, New Yorkers will have to decide how much they want to hold him to a high standard. I see. And speaking of, um, mm-hmm. I guess, resilience building and then tying back to what you mentioned about the awareness of general public and their strength of advocacy um, um, for a better um, plan and better implementation of the current plan, um, really like to kind of tie that back into, you know, the Sandy event that we all very still familiar with. So post-Sandy, climate change was basically on everyone's mind. And it seems now, a year on, it kind of faded out a little bit. And then even during the mayoral race, we don't hear a lot of uh, talks about climate change being popped up. So would you say that climate change is being sort of phasing out a little bit in people's priority and agenda? Well, I think, you know, there's uh, what's funny is it's the, it's the good news and the bad news of being somewhat non-controversial, mm. Right. New York is a place where, particularly in the, particularly after Sandy, it's hard to find people who don't think that climate change is real. It's hard to find people who don't think that climate change is a risk. Right. 
what's funny about that is that, of course, what makes headlines, what gets the attention of the news, et cetera, is when people are arguing about things, <laughs> right? Not when there's a more or less consensus on it. The other challenge is that addressing it is a long-term project, right? Mm -hmm. And nothing is harder for the political system to deal with than long-term projects because you don't have the kind of decisive action, you don't have the opportunity for heroism um, among politicians to champion a piece of legislation or, <laughs> or find a victim or whatever, and you don't have uh, the ability to cut ribbons right. on a very short-term basis. So I think those things help keep it um, out of the headlines. Mm -hmm. The good news, I think, is that because it's hard to find a New Yorker who doesn't think this is relevant, right. uh, if there is a concerted, thoughtful effort to keep going, to execute what Mayor Bloomberg's post-Sandy uh, Plan YC report, a, a stronger, more resilient New York, put forward, uh, what I think, I, and I personally didn't work on it, but I think a, a really thoughtful, comprehensive strategy, uh, you know, chances are that will have good political support. It's more a bread-and-butter thing. It's not a piece of political ideology, right. and hopefully it will make progress on that basis. I see. Um, what would you say um, this kind of progress may look like under the new administration and under the leadership of de Brasil? Uh, look, again, I mean, I, I, I know relatively little more than the average person about, uh, about the new mayor. Mm -hmm. um, so much will depend on who he chooses to put into the various leadership roles in government. And mm -hmm. as I say, it's, it's also about his level of commitment particularly when it comes time to make the difficult budget and other decisions. You know, you don't, while in general climate change is uncontroversial, mm -hmm. in any big city, particularly in a city as contentious as New York, <laughs> any initiative you do, no matter how small, is going to find somebody who hates it, mm. right? You can't plant trees in New York without having certain people complain about things falling on their cars or, or the potential for roots to tear up sidewalks or something, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think he is going to find that whether it's a, a storm surge barrier or changing the building code or, as we've already seen, some of the issues with, with changing the flood insurance rates and doing so as a result of recognizing the fact that the flood zone is much bigger than we thought it was. I mean, mm -hmm. we knew it was wrong, but the FEMA flood maps were so outdated. Um, he's going to find that there are a series of arguments, battles, whatever he's going to have. He's going to have to tell some people they can't have what they want. And we will see whether he's willing to do that. Right. It's definitely exciting. And um, I'm definitely keeping my um, eyes out, <laughs> looking out for um, what's on the horizon in the near future. And I'm sure a lot of people in our school are doing the same. So I think another key point of the Plan NYC and uh, the work that New York City is doing is as an example of a leadership that a megacity can take to show the rest of the world and the communities what um, could be done and what growth opportunity that can come with tackling climate change and looking at mitigation and adaptation. So um, would, could you maybe perhaps talk a little bit about the whole leadership rationale behind this? Uh, behind the Plan YC? Well, and so <clears throat> so leadership was not actually a rationale for us, mm -hmm. right? And I think it's one of the things that's important about cities. Cities are intensely competitive. 
mm-hmm. they will worry about whether New York is falling behind London or Singapore needs to do something to make sure it stays competitive with Hong Kong or Dubai. Um, and sustainability has become part of that. Right? Mm-hmm. Real cities, you know, quote unquote, a real city right. has a good sustainability plan. And mayors talk about that as being part of what their job is, which is great. Uh, But the other interesting thing about cities and what makes mayors, I think, so important on the world stage is they are intensely local, Mm. right? They're fundamentally not judged against each other. You go to the House of Representatives in Washington, and the only real question is, are the Republicans doing better than the Democrats or vice versa? Fundamentally, Boris Johnson and Mike Bloomberg aren't in a race against each other, right? right? Really, Mike Bloomberg is in a race— to make sure that his constituents are happy with him. And Boris Johnson is in the same race, which is why cities are far more likely to learn from each other. They're far more likely to collaborate. And they're far more likely to focus on, well, what works for me? Plan YC was completely done to serve the people of New York. Mm -hmm. Now, what it was informed by was the fact that we did look around the world and we saw places like London, which didn't actually at the time have a climate change plan, but had a great growth and land use plan. We looked at places like Portland and Santa Monica at the time that that had really thoughtful, rigorous uh, environmental sustainability or climate change plans and specific initiatives from around the world that helped inform Plan YC. That went into Plan YC, and in the same way what we see is that Plan YC has been looked at by other cities, emulated directly or indirectly, but, you know, what's great about the world cities is that New York's a shining example. I'm quite proud of the mm-hmm. role I played there. But you've got so many other great examples of cities that are doing great things, important things, mm-hmm. right? Whether it's what Melbourne's done on green buildings, what Munich's done uh, working on converting its entire municipal power supply to uh, completely renewable energy, what the city of Rio's done both on transportation, which is really improving the lives of the poorest people in Rio, but also in terms of dealing with climate change and protecting the lives of the people who live in the most vulnerable favelas. I mean, all of these cities around the world are doing tremendously exciting things. We are very much in an age when big city mayors are the most exciting and effective leaders we have. That's really exciting. And then that really highlights the role of the C40 and the group, which really brings the mayors of the mega cities together. So could you maybe tell us a little bit more about your organization and your role currently as the advisor and then what's really next on C40's agenda? Happy to. So the C40 Cities Climate Leadership Group is an organization right now of 63 of the world's largest cities mm-hmm. uh, that work together on climate change policy. Um, We focus on uh, sharing information, um, making sure that city officials know each other and know what each other is doing. In part, we do certain things collaboratively, but as I was suggesting, mostly it's so they can share information to bring home and bring to the job that they are doing for their constituents. Mm -hmm. An important role that C40 plays is helping identify what ideas what partners are most relevant for cities because while cities are very similar in many ways, Mm -hmm. what's really important is also the powers that are delegated to municipal governments. And those are different. So Mm -hmm. for example, New York and London are so similar in so many ways, but 
the powers of the mayor of London and the powers of the mayor of New York are very different. So many initiatives that would make perfect sense in New York aren't relevant for the mayor of London and vice mm -hmm. versa. So we have to think creatively, and C40 has to help the cities identify, well, oh, if you're in New York and you have complete control over the building code, well, actually, have you thought about looking at what Jakarta did? Because mm -hmm. Jakarta is another big city that has complete local control over the building code. If you're London, the New York City MTA is not necessarily the best model for you because it's actually a state agency. Mm -hmm. But Los Angeles has a much greater level of municipal control over its transit system. So maybe that's a partnership you should explore. That kind of thing, as well as helping the cities keep track of how they are doing, both in terms of the number of policies and projects and programs they've put into place, and codifying carbon emissions. In fact, C40 took the lead and, and worked closely with ICLEI and the World Resources Institute and the World Bank to ensure that there is now a single common protocol for how a municipality reports its community-wide emissions. That had not existed a couple of years ago. And as cities started asking the question, well, wait a minute, are, how are my carbon emissions on a per capita or sectoral or whatever basis compared to yours and compared to all these other cities? And am I making progress over time? The lack of a single protocol was a big problem, and so C40 helped fill that gap. So that's what C40 does, and it's a, uh, it's a tremendously vibrant organization. We work on networks related to all of the key issues around climate change. We respond to what the cities want to do because we are a membership organization. We are by cities, for cities. We're not an advocacy group. Uh, and I think we are making a big difference in, in accelerating the delivery of urban sustainability programs mm -hmm. and making them higher quality. Thanks. And it seems that New York is doing quite well in terms of uh, actually reporting and measuring its performance. And as you mentioned, uh, it closely tracks its mitigation goals. Do you see that this similar model of transparency and reporting being copied over and adopted by other cities in the network? And if so, would you see in the future cities being benchmarked against each other? Uh, I think we see that already. Now, mm -hmm. you know, benchmarking against each other can be quite dangerous, right? Because you don't have... Um, because you have to be thoughtful whenever you do a comparison. Any any academic knows that. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, just to say, oh, well, Los Angeles doesn't have as many transit riders as New York, that's not a helpful benchmarking because mm -hmm. Los Angeles can't change that overnight. Right. Um, any more than telling New York, oh, well, you know, you use a lot more fuel for heat than, than they do in Los Angeles. Well, okay, clearly the climate dictates that. Mm -hmm. Right, so that's not helpful. But what we do see... Certainly the reporting has become almost a standard. Three-quarters of C40 cities now are reporting data to the Carbon Disclosure Project, mm -hmm. which is a C40 partner, um, and well over 100 cities in general, uh, because it's not exclusive to C40, but it's a requirement, in fact, of being a C40 city. Mm -hmm. um, and virtually all of that data is now public. And thoughtful analysts are now not just saying, oh, well, this city is more sustainable than that. What we're beginning to see is a level of analysis from certain universities and other organizations that are helping mayors think about, well, okay, if you're here, say you have this kind of density, mm -hmm. here's the range of benchmarks that are relevant to you. Because right. Los Angeles and New York shouldn't compare themselves to each other, but Los Angeles and Sao Paulo maybe have a similar urban form, and that allows you to have a good conversation over, over how you're doing. 
uh, on a transportation benchmark, for example. Right. Thanks. And it seems that New York is truly, um, through the network, being really playing its leadership role in promoting climate change mitigation and um, actions against that. Um, but I would just like to turn our conversation a little bit and towards more of a local level and leadership in locally within New York and mm-hmm. to, I guess, this what city is doing as an example for the New Yorkers. Um, it seems that um, New Yorkers are largely still quite unaware of the existence of the plan. And according to the Insight Climate News, um, they refer to uh, the plan NYC as a Bloomberg's hidden legacy. So could you perhaps give us a bit of insight how we can communicate this better to the New Yorkers? That's a good question. I guess, you know, the the question you have to ask yourself, the question I've asked myself is, mm-hmm. is it actually important for New Yorkers to know about Plan YC? Right. Right. And, yeah, it's self-gratifying for a guy who helped develop that plan that they might. Um, mm-hmm. But, in fact, that's not what will make a difference to the world. Right. right? Because unlike certain initiatives, I mean, you know, Obamacare, of course, is having a a, a, a tough period right now. But something that requires millions of individuals to go to a website and make a personal decision as a, in response to a policy, mm-hmm. that requires massive levels of awareness. Plan YC isn't quite that. So what is important for the implementation of the goals or the initiatives in Plan YC is that the specific target audiences for specific initiatives know. Right. So, for example, we've updated the building codes mm-hmm. to be far greener. Right. What's critical is the perhaps 10,000 people in New York who are registered architects and engineers and work on on uh, building retrofits, right? Plumbers and electricians and, and building superintendents, they need to know about changes to the building code. They need to know about the mandated retro commissioning that's part of the great, Greener Greater Buildings Plan. Uh, the of course the taxi industry was mm-hmm. highly aware, unfortunately for us, because they sued us and won uh, about the hybrid taxi mandate that we put in place. But similarly, we saw very quickly that the owner operators, mm-hmm. the people who actually own the taxis that they drive and therefore reap the benefits of the fuel savings, they converted to hybrid taxis extraordinarily quickly as soon as the mayor started talking about them. Because once Mike Bloomberg was out there saying, look at all the gasoline you could save, that increases your effective wages by a huge percentage if you're a taxi driver. They don't make a lot of money, uh, cabbies in New York. Um, They saw that opportunity and acted in self-interest. And and you see a large portion of the cabs in New York are are hybrids. Mm -hmm. The ones that are predominantly are the owner-operators. Right, so to a certain extent, it's not necessarily a universal mass movement that we mm-hmm. need. It is education directed at what we want individuals to do. Right. That's amazing, and it's um, really insightful to hear all of the um, stories behind the plan and uh, all the aspects about it. So before we really close out our time here, I'd really like to ask a question on behalf of a lot of my classmates who have actually very interested in climate change issues in the built environments. So as we all, a lot of us are going to be seeking career or internship in this area, what sort of advices could you actually give us? Well, okay. Um, you know, you're probably not going to get rich. Uh, that's unfortunate, <laughs> but it's it's true. But um, 
you know, I think the the cutting edge areas in sustainability that I'd encourage anybody starting their careers to be thinking about. First of all, we see a ton of innovation and creativity coming out of the mega cities of the developing world, hmm. right? And from an American's perspective, I think there's a huge opportunity for people who work in a place like a Rio or um, India or, or wherever to figure out what they're doing that could be imported to the United States or Europe or, or the quote-unquote developed world because we've already begun to see that, right? Bus rapid transit mm -hmm. was a Brazilian invention. It took 50 years before it became legitimate for mm -hmm. developed countries to adopt it, and now it's taking over as everybody's first choice for a transit solution. That's only the tip of the iceberg, mm -hmm. and I think there's a huge opportunity for people like you just coming out of a degree program here at Yale to go find those opportunities, not only make them real in those developing cities, but also bring them to the developed cities. That's one. I think there are still a huge, and I'm contradicting myself because the opportunity to get rich mm -hmm. does exist. There is a big opportunity in so much green business innovation. And, you know, the I, I've spent three years living in Silicon Valley and Unfortunately, the green tech world has gotten a bit of a black eye. Mm. Um, people haven't made as much money in it as, as the hopes were perhaps five years ago. But there are delivery mechanisms that have to be developed. How do you make home retrofits easier to do? It's not about, I don't think, it's not about the financing. It's not about the technology. It's the difficulty of finding the right contractor and having people traipsing through your living room. That's the bigger <laughs> barrier that most homeowners have. There must be business models that can get around that problem. There are going to be new technologies for batteries and other things. And, you know, somebody with a uh, an environmental policy degree might not be the person developing that technology, but figuring out where the scalable opportunities for applications are, that's right in the wheelhouse of a program like Yale's. Thank you very much. Um, Dr. Argyle, for all the great insights today and for spending time with us. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.